Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. And welcome to everybody out here. We are live at EMS World Expo, the International Scientific Symposium. And this is the September 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. Thanks to our big audience out there. You guys, can you clap so they can hear like how many people? We got all these live people and we have uh, some people on Zoom. Um, welcome. What we're going to be doing today, we're going to talk a little bit first about what's been going on at EMS World with our fearless leader, David Page. I'm here with Michael Caduce and a, a room full of folks here and it's you out there. And we're bringing to you uh, a journal club and uh, some information about our International Scientific Symposium. Okay, so off to the races now. Uh, it's been a great couple of days in New Orleans so we are at the tail end, little little tired, but never too tired to look at some more research. And uh, this article that we picked for our September um, PCRF Education Research Journal Club is entitled Pre-Hospital Pediatric Emergency Training Using Augmented Re Reality Simulation, a Prospective Mixed Method Study. So this is a study out of Stanford. So out in my neck of the woods, I'm in San Francisco. So they're just south of us. Um, Mountain View Fire Department uh, participated in this. A nice, you know, small kind of feasibility study for augmented reality uh, use in pediatric education. And it's a continuing education study. So sometimes we look at, you know, the basic EMT or paramedic or initial education, uh, kind of the pre-licensure, pre-certification level. This is actually part of continuing education. So we'll keep that in mind as we go. And Michael, you chose this article. So I'm wondering if you can start us off by saying, you know, what caught your eye? This is in pre-hospital emergency care. Unfortunately, I think it's not open access, um, but we can, you can uh, figure out a way to get it. Well, we're going to give them all the details. So yeah. they're going to know exactly what exactly. the study said here before the end of the day. Um, actually, this is a great article and great research. And I think the goal of all of our research articles is to find something that has methods that are valuable. And this has valuable methods. It's a great thematic analysis that we'll get into the details on. Um, we like it because it's new and it's shiny. And I think as EMS providers, we like new shiny things. Uh, augmented reality is something that's going to come likely to all of our classrooms at some point in time. What we need to know is how do we take the technology and best implement it into our classrooms? And this study starts looking at that into in the continuing education environment. Um, so I like that. I like any study that's recreatable and they gave you everything in the yeah. study. So there's an appendix with the questions they asked. There's all their tables. There's all their data. They even went through the scenarios um, that they went through, the one scenario that they went through. So uh, I like that. I think any classroom, any continuing education provider could actually replicate this if they had the augmented reality technology. And actually this study even tells you what augmented reality technology they used mm -hmm. and talks about how you go about getting licensure for it. So uh, I, for all of those reasons, I like it. We need to know how we're going to implement this technology in our classroom in the future. Um, and it's new and it's shiny and we like new shiny things. Yeah. And, and it has to do with deeper learning, right? So we know that we, we were just talking about this in a previous session and Aaron Donathan's here has done virtual reality research. We had a great discussion about active learning strategies 
um, how it's more equitable teaching. You see better results all around and improve retention, not just passing the test, but retaining those skills with uh, deeper learning uh, and certain uh, pedagogies or teaching techniques um, that will engage the student deeply. And certainly augmented reality, virtual reality uh, can immerse you into, mm -hmm. you know, I guess when done properly and and all those other things, right? Yeah, yeah this isn't just- Anchored skills. in objectives. Skill and, sheet. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and that, I think that's one of the other perks of this study is they're very clear on what their objectives were and what they started out trying to do. And as educators, learning objectives are our baseline and where we start from. So- um, should we dive into it? Yeah, sure. So um, they give us the background, which I think all of us, there's no uh, tough sell on the background of needing to know how to run a pediatric critical patient call. And so they talk about the high stakes, you know, low frequency um, environment around uh, EMS calls and, and pediatric um, patients. Uh, and that the competence tends to decay. There's a lot of evidence that very quickly after training, even within six weeks to three months, you start to see decay in procedural skills, performance, and you know, even knowledge decay. And and uh, I'm I really appreciate that they mentioned clinical anxiety. Mm -hmm. So they said, you know, decay due to limited skills practice, attrition of those skills, and clinical anxiety around these calls. Um, but they said there's also barriers to this kind of um you know, providing good ongoing training, uh, some of that's funding, uh, having the expert personnel and consistent training across those personnel, right? And then the time. So um, that's another thing that's come up with virtual reality and augmented reality is the idea that you can standardize something without having the interference of, um, you know, the the different techniques or opinions of instructors. Uh, so I, I think that was, that was a, a really good point. Um, so then they decided that, uh, and they point to, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality training, having that, um, you know, potential to be one of the uh, ways to teach and, and interact and make it kind of deeper learning. They also mentioned that it's already been integrated into the fourth edition rollout of, of PEP, of the Pediatric Education for Pre-Hospital Professionals course. Um, and then, uh, you know, but, but no one's really done specific studies about, you know, whether or not it, people are using it, how useful is it? Uh, although Aaron, uh, gave us a little bit of her research on that today. Uh, they used uh, something called the Charm. It's a proprietary um, simulator. Charm is Chariot Augmented Reality Medical Simulator. So that's uh, Charms, I guess. Charm uh, from Stanford University. Um, and then they talked about the software licensing that you can get through a nonprofit organization in Vinci Kids in San Bruno, California. So again, they point right to where we could actually act. Did you access yeah. it yet? Um, I did not go look at it. Um, <laughs> though when I pulled this article, I was like, this looks like you could do this. I thought it was also interesting. So they do differentiate in their introduction, the difference between virtual reality, VR yeah. and AR. And so I think sometimes we interchange <laughs> these words. Um, it is probably worth noting that in this study, their definition of augmented reality blends visual images with real elements. So they mm -hmm. are actually going to use some of the medical simulation equipment that we would have a bag valve mask, for example. Um, I think they mentioned a glucometer and some things like that. So I think it's worth noting that this isn't the um, this isn't necessarily the hand controlled uh, like noculus glasses that I sometimes think of. Yeah. Um, so there is some actual blend here. Yeah, that's an important point. And we've looked at augmented reality in the past uh, on a, a couple of studies, especially there was one out of Australia that we looked at, I mm -hmm. believe, that had augmented reality. They sent out 3D 
printed uh, laryngoscopes to students in rural areas and had them practice using a, a, a program on their iPhone that they could drop into a pair uh, of glasses and they could get some um, haptic feedback even in some ways. So that haptic feedback to, to give more of a, a, a sense of reality uh, is really important. But yeah, that's an important point. What is virtual versus augmented and where do you uh, blend them? So the purpose of their study then was just to explore the utilization of this AR software for EMS training using a qualitative and a quantitative approach. So that's what some of the mixed methods is all about. And the primary aim was to determine the acceptance of AR simulation among pre-hospital uh, clinicians using semi-structured interviews. And then uh, secondarily, they wanted to evaluate the usability and the ergonomics. So, you know, sometimes I see things and I think, okay, give somebody a toy and ask them, you know, whether they like the toy you know, and it's a fun toy, you know, people are going to say, yeah, it's really fun. Um, but I think it was really good that they, they went into greater detail. They looked at also usability. I mean, is it practical to use in training? And then what about the ergonomics? Cause a lot of people talk about, you know, I get nauseated. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, necessarily something that I can feel comfortable doing. Um, yeah, I'm really impressed with the number of things they asked and, and sort of looked at. So when we get to the results, we've got a whole bunch of them. Uh, I thought it was interesting, too, in their methods. Um, they set up a scenario that has already been fairly well validated. So the simulation scenario that they put their augmented folks through um, was a child with a hypoglycemic-induced seizure. Um, and I can definitely say I think that would increase the cognitive load on an experienced paramedic and EMT, um, without a doubt. Uh, it was adapted from a scenario that was previously used in the PD Steps program and taught over 550 pre-hospital clinicians um, using high-fidelity simulators. So I think good to use a scenario that's been well validated and well used. This isn't just something we made up in our backyard and we're going to throw our students into today. Um, we have some certain expectations around what, what's going to happen. Um, they put some folks through this and then they asked them some questions at the end. And I think that's really how they drew their conclusions and how they drew the results was a thematic analysis of the interviews with the folks after they participated in this scenario. Yeah, so it was prospective mixed methods. What you're seeing on the screen now is, and this is a, an image in the article, um, what the actual image would look like. You'd have a pediatric patient, um, and they, you can see that you can uh, they can attach things. They could actually use some equipment. There was no mannequin. That was one thing that that they mentioned later. There wasn't a mannequin there, so there was this augmented reality or virtual reality image of the the patient. And then uh, some what you're seeing is kind of the overlay into the real environment. So um, you see the oxygen tank, you see, um, you know, a crash cart. And there's another comment that was made by the MS providers later that they did this very kind of hospital based, a monitor, the the uh, baby, you see the BVM. And then a little red marker there that's, that's uh, designed to kind of situate um, them in the real kind of world surrounding. So the... Um, you're seeing this kind of overlaid into this. So now you have this simulation of a pediatric patient having a seizure. They were to go through their, they were instructed, not for very long really, on how to use this, how how to interact and uh, what to use. They had an actual uh, IV set up. They had actual medications to draw up so they can see their real environment around this kind of um, augmented imagery. 
And so that's what they were working with. It was one-time simulation. So I think there's 22 participants in this and there's it's a it's a one simulation. At some point they do they talked about and I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, but they talked about uh going from uh the seizure to now cardiac arrest. I saw that too cuz they said they didn't have a compression mannequin to mm -hmm. do the chest compressions on and I really I was I was a bit concerned on how the hypoglycemic seizure patient made it to cardiac arrest or if that <laughs> and was a V-fib arrest. Yeah, if that was a less. negative outcome of not treating the patient and I didn't see necessarily how we got there. I could see if maybe you weren't treating the patient they had built that into the scenario since they were using a pre-approved scenario. Mm -hmm. Um so I, I wondered that too. Um I felt bad uh, that like let's cognitive load's already pretty high and now the patient is coding and it's a pediatric patient. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how prepared they were with the, with the simulation, uh, whether it was just, you're going to a, a pediatric patient with a seizure. And like you said, did they know what was going to happen yeah. ahead of time? Um, since the study was really not about their actions as it was about, and their performance, as it was about their judgment of whether or not this was usable. Um, so they had to uh, apply their clinical reasoning skills. They had to, um, you know, communicate with their team. So there was some of that. They had to make decisions. You know, all of those things were integrated into this. They also, interestingly, inserted a parent actor. I thought the, the other interesting part that I loved about the methods was they excluded anyone that had extreme motion sickness. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, I guess if you're going to do this, this seems like a good ex uh, exclusionatory criteria. Um, but yeah, they had a parent actor in there. And I wondered... One of the things, because I think you're, yep, so this is the slide of them. I yeah. wondered how they see each other, right? You can see the mannequin, you can see the crash cart, you can see the vital signs. I don't, it doesn't really dictate in the, in the methods if you see each other doing the skills or if this parent was was something they could see or yeah, just hear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wondered that too, because that would definitely, again, increase my cognitive load. They they did say, I remember one of the comments in there was, I I felt, it felt weird not being able to make eye contact with mm -hmm. my partners. So I had to verbalize. Um, someone had said it forced me to actually verbalize more, forced me to delegate, forced me to do closed loop communication, yeah. which they thought was a positive thing. Um, and that way that comment was made more than once. So um, yeah, that, so that's interesting. I don't, I, I can't sort of envision it. Like if I was wearing those yeah. goggles, can I see other, you can see the surroundings. So I would imagine you can see other people, but maybe you can, the eye contact itself, the nonverbal yeah. communication that you use uh, sometimes uh, was not there. So Okay, so we can, and you know what? Uh, we I see we have some people. Whoops, we got some echo. Okay, we have some people out there, but I'm not sure we'd be able to hear you. I see uh, Dr. Bill Toon is out there, and I don't want to cause any echoes or anything. I'm not sure if we are able to unmute and hear you, but if we can't, if you could just keep using the chat. Uh, Mike's monitoring the chat area here. Um, while I'm moving these uh, slides out here. And anybody out in the audience too, if you guys have anything to contribute, just like you would in, in Zoom, if you wanna raise your hand too, as we go, if you have anything to contribute, um, go for it and we can bring you into the conversation, okay? All right. I think that brings us to our results. After yeah. the study, they did a thematic analysis and, and got some opinions. We should start with the characteristics of those people that were involved. Um, you can see that up on the screen now. They had a nice breakdown of people that were involved in this. I think it did sort of match with what we've seen previously in demographics for EMS providers where um, maybe our sample size wasn't as diverse as we would have liked it. Um, the one thing I noted from the sample size that I appreciate is they put both EMTs and paramedics into the skill set. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to see us in, as an EMT educator as well. I like to see us, um, you know, including our EMT colleagues um, in the simulation, because certainly there's plenty they can do for a hypoglycemic pediatric seizure slash VFib rest. Um, what else did you find interesting in the demographics and the survey questions they asked, Megan? Um, actually, the one that interested me the most, and, and I thought of Katie O'Connor on this one. I'm not sure if I saw Katie at the conference. I'm not sure if she's gone or uh, or around, but um, the they asked whether they had experienced the number of times you've previously experienced uh, augmented reality. Okay, well, th- not surprisingly, yeah. you're going to see some low numbers there. So when the number, of, it was like 77% had never uh, experienced augmented reality. Um, only uh, one or two times um there were five people who had experienced it one or two times probably at the mall or something yeah, right yeah. um and then greater than two times nobody so they were inexperienced in augmented reality which was good because they wanted to see is this feasible uh, and then the next question was the one that surprised me um and i i'm i'm not sure if this was misunderstood or or worded in a different way but the number of times you've previously experienced in person simulation live role-playing simulations, high-fidelity simulations. And five people said none. Yeah, I thought that was 22% interesting. 22% of the, of the group said, I've never been involved in that. So are they- And, an, and another five said only once or twice, which once makes twice. me think, what's your paramedic school doing? Yeah. Um, or what's your EMT school doing to train you um, ready for it? Now, I think this is an interesting question because I think if we ask people how much high-fidelity training have you had, people think high-fidelity training is my $200,000 yeah. mannequin, um, when in fact that's, you know, we can do high-fidelity simulation other ways. I, I did appreciate the years of EMS experience, Megan, and, and how they said they had a very diverse group of people. They had a couple people with just a one to five years of experience, a few more with six to 10. So they really had, of all their diversity in their demographics and experience here, that was definitely something they, they had. And I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at people and their adaptation to technology, we have early adapters, we have innovators, and we have people that are going to be holdouts. Um, I think of when, you know, who buys their iPhone and stands in line versus the people that wait till all the bugs get worked out of it. So they had some diversity in their experience, which I appreciated. Yeah. And I don't think we can make judgments. I know it's real easy and I do it and I have to catch myself making judgments about age and technology mm-hmm. level or interest, because uh, I don't think it necessarily always follows that the younger they are, the more likely they are to have used you know, augmented reality. Um, so, but, but that, that helps to have this like widespread of years of experience. Something I feel like we should explain since both of us work in California is this is a, um, the Mountain View fire department, which is in California. Um, you'll see the current EMS level, but you'll also see, you know, um, national registry versus state certification. And you'll, you'll see very few actually maintain national registry. And that's because it's not required to maintain national registry in the state. So, they did get their initial certification. They had to because that's the state test, um, but they um, let it lapse because they're not required to maintain national registry, only state certification. So in case anyone's looking at this and wondering that, that's what that's all about is the lack of requirement. The next findings were their focus group findings. And again, this is, we have a ton of data in here. Oh, what's the next table? Uh, not the, I didn't put that table in because it's that's so right. busy, yeah. but no, we, you can okay. talk about that nope, table too I'm, if you want. It's sideways it's, on my screen, so. Yeah, it's um, sideways. So if you see us going like this. Yeah, this is our table three. So this is the system usability scale. Um, so these were some of the uh, questions that they asked the participants, things like, I think I would like to use the system frequently. I found the system unnecessarily complex. So again, how 
how easy is this to use? I feel confident using the system. And they provide some, you know, agreeability scores. Uh, I do appreciate that they have a fairly positive view of these, and we can break them down as we go. But most people thought the system worked pretty well. If there was 145 that stood out to me that said, I think, um, I think that I would like need the support of a technical person to be able to use the system. And I wonder if that had anything to do with the fact that it was a pretty quick orientation to the augmented reality and the fact that very few people in the study had actually had augmented reality. Mm -hmm. um, there was another one that said, I thought there was too much inconsistency in the system. That was pretty low, which I appreciate for simulation. Yeah. Um, I feel like every skills lab, I fight that um, battle with, well, so-and-so said do it this way, so-and-so said not to. So I think they did a nice job on that. And they didn't find it cumbersome to use, exactly. which I thought was really, I mean, that was a, a great comment there too. So um, the support of the technical person, that um, also makes me think, well, maybe it's not an EMS educator necessarily mm -hmm. that can be in the room, maybe it can, or maybe it can be an EMS, you know, a, a teaching assistant, someone maybe an EMT who's who knows how to use the equipment, yeah. you know, rather than having the clinical expert in the room. I thought that was interesting. And I wondered, yeah, you could feasibly make this the same person. You just need to be able to operate the glasses to run the study. The study. Um, the, should we dive into the focus group findings? Yeah, sure. Quite a bit of them. But the recording capability, too, of the system. Oh, if you could record the actual augmentation, you're almost going to have to run yeah. the cameras, record the augmentation and record what's going on on the ground. Because yeah, the, that would be kind of a funny recording yeah, to watch, the right? equipment you can't see. So that, and that I could see where that could impact your debriefing. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Dave? You're quiet over there. Busy typing. Um, yeah. He's so doing I, seven I, things at once. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I also think that it might be... Um, uh, interesting. The, the, the way that this paper is describing um, simulation, the augmentation does not seem to be augmented. It seemed to be almost virtual. Uh, and so I, um, I almost think that the, the, the goggles, instead of it being, uh, here, here's what I'm thinking. I, in, in, in Singapore, I saw uh, augmented reality being used with um, safety glasses where you could uh, layer uh, an image on top of what you see, what is which is truly yeah, augmented. Glasses, yeah. So the so you're able to see, for example, you arrive at a, at a scene, you look at a mall, and you're able to see where the AED is, or you're able to see where the patient is, or you could look at a mannequin and the the software is making the mannequin bleed. You, you follow me? Um, so 100%, they should be able to record that. When you're interacting with multiple people, which is, I think, phenomenal, yeah. uh, I think that's the the uh, that's the ideal, is being, being able to work in teams, which is the advantage of this. Uh, the, the inability to interact with an object or with the other people in the room would be the the limiting uh, rate limiting factor, and recording it would mean recording three different performances simultaneously, versus just a video of the event. And maybe the video is being recorded, but the performance is not. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I would want both of those to be recorded if I was going to make a judgment about performance. Does that does that work? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and recording is now um, you know very common and. Uh, 
I, I would imagine that that would be a, a limiting factor uh, with something like this in terms of usability. And maybe recording at the continuing education level is not as common as con recording at the initial education. What do you that think? That seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Less sort of requirements to maintain some yeah. competency documentation. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Those, the, the, the glasses, glasses you were talking about, they're like the Google glasses or something where you put them on and the scene itself changes, right? And right. you're working within the context yeah. of the scene. I do, I do love, love the teamwork, teamwork and that is one of the limitations that we've seen in some of the virtual things is that the individual can interact, but but the ability to interact with your team uh, back and forth is uh, is limited and and maybe it's growing now, but it's, but it's been limited um, traditionally. So um, talk about the ergonomics one. Is that what our next one yeah, I think is? Um, before, sure. Yeah. Um, so I thought the, the, so they also looked at ergonomics. Does the system work? Can you, you know, can you reasonably do this? If, if we have to push a cart behind you, it's not a very realistic ability mm -hmm. of what's actually going on. Um, so actually they had fairly low, uh, like the, most of the people did not agree with these comments, which are good because the questions were like, is it too bulky? Is it too heavy? Was the mental effort required for the device too high? People were saying no to those questions for the most part, only about 4% of people. So it's likely one participant. Um, uh, head fatigue was very high. No Nobody said that, which is nice. Eye fatigue got a little high for a couple of people, looks like. And then um, they did ask if people would feel comfortable using the device for a long time. And 63% of people said they agree or strongly disagree. So uh, more than half said that they would feel comfortable using it. I do think that's a valuable takeaway from yeah. this paper, because that's one of the things that we've seen consistently in our augmented and virtual reality is people get nauseous, they get sick, they get a headache, especially if they've had a history of that. And I do think if you've had a history of motion sickness, there's probably bring some anxiety into the situation. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's worth noting. So I do, I do appreciate that they asked people, um, would you continue using it? Do you feel like it could be used for the long time for a long time period i don't know what they define that as but i would imagine that's like more than this you know 10 15 minute simulation yeah and i'm wondering if you know getting used to it you know is is a factor yeah. how how what happens over time um aaron donathan you're out there um do you, have you found uh people getting used to virtual reality headsets so there's a term for it it's uh it's called vr sickness vr sickness it's called vr sickness there is not a lot of information out there about it because VR is still relatively new. You can find cities that have very high proportions of people that use it. In the most recent one that we ran, uh, there was only about a 2% amount of population who experienced a headache or nausea with the glasses on. It's important with, with virtual reality that you have to take the headsets off every once in a while to take a break. It's very much like riding the virtual roller coasters or any of that stuff. If you're prone to migraines, if you're prone to um, any of those things, you have to watch yourself. But generally, especially for programs like this, which are stationary and not the video games where you're running through scenes, mm -hmm. it doesn't tend to affect too many people. There's a higher level of nervousness about it, I think, than there is an actual instance of it. Yeah, nervousness yeah. about the nausea. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes to throw up in front of other people. Yeah. Right. Oh, sorry, audience. I wasn't sure if this microphone, I think we have it set um, uh, directed toward us. Sorry about that. So Aaron Donathan has done uh, a lot of research on virtual reality and continues to. So thank you for your research on it um, because it's such an important thing, um, but has found, you know, about 2%, did you say, get the nausea? Um, in her most recent one, um, so there's there's that degree of VR sickness that, but more of a fear of VR sickness than the actual 
than the actual results of it. But uh, I, I'm just curious now too, as, as they get used to this uh, platform, if it does prove to be beneficial, then so this is feasibility. This right? is feasibility, and actually, part of the ergonomics was feasibility. I think. Um, technology acceptance was another thing that was interesting that they noted in the yeah. results. So we should say they had they themed this and they came up with several themes throughout the thematic analysis. This was not topics that they were looking for. These were topics that came out of the interviews. So they asked some specific questions with the focus group, which were the people that participated in the study. And they actually included that in the study. So they included exactly what questions they asked and they adopted this from a previous study. So again, they're sharing the method so it can be repeated. So they found their thematic analysis included a general appraisal, a realism, um, learning efficacy, mixed reality feasibility, technology acceptance, software uh, optimization, and then rare, but they noted it in the results, alternate use of cases. So we can actually look at each one of those things because they included what the participants said in the thematic analysis. Um, maybe we just go straight through yeah. each one. So they did, when talking to the participants, they looked at the general appraisal, which is what did people just generally think about this? Um, did it work for you in the situation? Um, and they said 14 participants offered appraisals of the overall simulation experience. 12 of the participants positively described the experience. So again, it's a thematic analysis, which means we're looking at what people say. So 12 or um, 14 of the participants mentioned this. So they had some conversation about, you know, it's, it's feasible to do this. It's generally, um, you know, it works. 12 of the participants um, positively described the experience, referring to the experience as great, cool. Um, and according to one participant, yeah, I have night this, and day. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, night, night and day, day difference between what they've used with mannequins. So um, again, I think I always look for something that I can get buy-in with mm -hmm. my students on. Um, so the fact that the students are saying, yeah, this actually works and there's buy-in uh, prevents the like, no, that was stupid. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, that, that's helpful. Uh, they did uh, realism was their next theme, if you will, uh, and they found that participants uh, consistently reflected on the realistic nature of the AR simulation. Uh, eight of the participants commented that the ability to feel a pulse on the controller, listen to lung sounds, and to visualize a lifelike patient created a more realistic training environment than a than traditional simulation. And I think most of us would agree. Um, we take our one standard six-year-old mannequin because that's the only pediatric mannequin most of us have, and we put it on the floor and we make it a one-year-old, a two-year-old the four-year-old, the five-year-old, the six-year-old, and however old they want to be. So I do appreciate that this simulation technology allows you to actually change that. Um, you know you're not walking into the same thing, which again, raises that level of learning. You could also insert um, cultural diversity into simulation more easily Absolutely. when you have uh, simulated um, mannequins or simulated uh, people. And difficult topics, right? And difficult and, topics, um... yeah topics you wouldn't be able to do assessments you wouldn't be able to do in a real group well that was the i thought that was the cool thing about having the parent actor was to insert that you had to um you know you had to uh interact with the with the parent too mm -hmm. so that was a, another and i think it, some of times it took the students by surprise i think that what came up in their yeah. um, results is that they had it took them a little bit by surprise that's what made me think it was just a voice overhead rather than an actual person that walked into person. the simulation yeah. like the the voice of god is talking to <laughs> yeah. you while you're trying to resuscitate this pediatric patient but it turns out it's a parent yeah um so i thought that was funny uh or that that was the connection i made in my mind they also looked at learning efficacy or this was the uh, uh, an additional theme that was brought up to 
participants consistently reported that the training simulation was a valuable method to promote learning. Again, we care about what students say after they learn something. Was it a good user experience? We know there's plenty of data that suggests when students have a good experience, they're more likely to learn. If they're scared, if they're nervous, if they're anxious, we don't get to the level of learning that we do if students are in a supported environment. Thus, we care what they have to say afterwards. Uh, specifically, they said eight participants noted that the experience promoted practice of pediatric treatment algorithms, medication dosing, uh, medication dosing, that's something we can probably yeah. all use a little practice mm -hmm. on, uh, scene management, task prioritization, and again, leadership, they're delegating roles, the American Heart Association's virtual ACLS and PALS does the same thing, we need you to be able to work well together as a team, and they've taken that into account in this uh, augmented reality. Yep, and prepare for the stress of the field. That one comment, it prepares us for the stress of the field. Yep, yep. again, we're raising that cognitive load. We're giving some, hopefully some stress inoculation throughout mm -hmm. the training. Exactly. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I, I guess one of the things that I, I feel like we need to move beyond uh, is research that just says, I'm satisfied and yeah. it was fun. Yep. <laughs> yes. Like, so And so what? I mean, great, it was fun. Um, the measurement here and the and the call to action on the part of EMS researchers is, did it result in better care, in improved outcomes for educational outcomes or, or clinical outcomes? But it's stepwise, right? So translational research in medical education is stepwise. So you have the first step, which is, you know, the, something like this. We use it. Is it um, feasible, usable? Do students, you know, will they, will they use it? Um, did they learn in the sort of short-term thing? You might have a pre-test, post-test kind of thing. And then the next level, does it change practice? Does it actually change their practice in a clinical setting? And then the third level being, does it change the outcome of the patient? Do all of these things in a row change the outcome of the patient? Some say there's a fourth level, and that is, does it change outcomes in the community? So that's that's a, another another great um you know, consideration in it. So this would be at, at kind of even a piece of translation level one. We're not even, and, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we talk about satisfaction surveys all the time. A lot of times as a faculty member, you're judged on what your students, you know, how they feel uh, about you and how they're learning and whatever. But we also know that students um, oftentimes will rate methods of teaching that are not the best method for retention, mm -hmm. for long-term learning and retention. So that's something we had to keep in mind. But to your point, the student has to be comfortable too. They yeah. got to be safe to learn. And so that's actually a important piece. Oh, I think that's incredibly important. And I, I agree. We see things on teaching evaluations like this was the most fun instructor. I'm like, <laughs> that's great. I'm glad you had fun, but did you learn anything? Um, so I think, again, as we look at what's the best educational practice, like, I don't like that you made me take a test. Well, okay, but at some point in time, we're going to have to do that. The next theme they found in their thematic analysis was the mixed reality feasibility. So the mixed reality feasibility domain referenced the participants assessment of the feasibility of using real world objects together with the AR imagery. So again, their test, or the, the, the thing that came up in the conversation was the haptics, if you will. And we've talked about this on a couple other papers, um, the use of the BVM, the squeezing of the BVM, the connecting of the IV tubing, um, those type of things, the, the handles that you know, simulate the pulse. 
the students want to have that hands-on connection. And, and I see even that's probably even more important on the initial education side, but I think on the continuing education side, it holds true. Uh, 12 of the participants uh, reflected on the value of the training experience that blends both the visual and the physical elements. Um, and, and I thought this participant actually summed it up. Uh, it's got to be a mix of both, which is what they did. Mm -hmm. um, medicine is both cerebral and physical. Um, and I thought, gosh, what a great cerebral comment to make. Yes. Um, so <laughs> good reflection on the fact that they're taking the hands and putting it together. They're not just sitting in a room table topping this. Um, they're really, truly trying to blend it together. Yeah. The, the one thing though, too, um, I appreciated was that they discussed the difficulty in seeing objects that we would consider pretty critical, like yep. pediatric dosing charts. Yep. So that that's, um, you know, I can imagine you can see the larger objects, but uh, pulling up a pediatric dosing chart was not visible to them. And that would be a practical thing that you would use in a situation like that. I'm not sure how they got around that. Yeah. And they also said one um, participant noted the safety concerns of using needles and other equipment that you can't see while wearing the headset. And I thought to myself, gosh, uh, if I was going to change the simulation. I think I would probably try and eliminate the risk that someone's yeah. going to poke themselves with a sharp. Um, uh, just Again, if we're starting out to see, does this work? Mm -hmm. I may I may worry about that as well. So you know, at some point, maybe we'll have something where you have simulated materials mm -hmm. that that aren't real um, needles. I, I I looked at something out of Spain once that they were doing a CPR uh, virtual reality where the headset, and you probably already have seen this, but the headset will detect hands. Um, not gloves, not joysticks, your hands, so that you can actually, get the uh, the feedback on uh, rate and compression directly like headset to hands to real hands. Yeah. So I thought about that is there are there things that can be part of it that are not real that are simulated without having to use the real thing. Yeah. But this is a really interesting space right now because of the new announcement from Apple and their new devices. Uh, I think the new Apple Watch you now are going to be able to just uh, uh, tap with your finger, right? So, so now you, just the, just the, the, the Apple, Apple Watch, Watch will detect your your, your clicks with a with your with your fingers, two fingers uh, uh, joining, joining together. together. I guess I'm not on, on camera, mm. so that people can't see this, but but, but just tapping. <laughs> yeah. So um, in Australia, they had uh, laryngoscopes with um, uh, tabs with with uh, so that with the augmented reality uh, software, you were intubating, intubating you were seeing the uh, anatomy of a human and you were intubating and it could see where you were moving the laryngoscope, how you were putting in the end of the tube. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that, that the technology is gonna get quicker, quicker. The, the, the processing is gonna get quicker, the, the uh, fidelity of the visual is gonna get better. The, the question, question is, um, do we have enough market share in EMS, enough, enough, uh, enough people who need this in emerging medical, medical services, services that we will get enough attention from developers and mm -hmm. and um, uh, and programmers to make these devices as advanced as we would like them. And I often I often feel like we we're trying to game the system to a point of, well, why not just put a mannequin or one of us complaining of chest pain and three students together and work it. So I'm not I'm I love augmented reality and I think it's going to be super cool. Um, uh, I'm just, uh, unless the authoring tools get super easy, then, then the, the fidelity of the experience gets a little bit yeah. weird. And, and I, I just want to also remind, remind everybody, everybody that creativity, creativity uh, at a very uh, simple level, uh, uh, I'm reminded of one 
uh, exam, uh, simulation exam we were working on, people were worried about needle sticks because you were saying, well, what about a sharp object in this situation? And and a simple paper clip can be an, an IV needle, right? You just need to use your creativity, put the paper clip in the in the in the catheter so that the student actually gets practice doing the exact thing. But in fact, in fact um, the, the end result is you know you really can't hurt yourself. So. Um, the lack of creativity and the desire for the technology to solve the entire thing is part of the problem. Let's that's the augmented wonderfulness is is couldn't you have uh, enough creativity so that the hybrid tools um, and reality and the and the technology blend, but you don't need technology to do all of it. Um, that, that's the beauty with things like I simulate where the the it's a it's it, you're actually putting leads on a human but the EKG is really coming out of a, an iPad. So it's it's getting that creative about what, what we need the mannequin to do. And if compressions and feedback from compressions is actually really critical, mm -hmm. great. But then, so then the augmented piece come, maybe comes in when we intubate and see a much more realistic airway. Yeah. Can you check the Q&A? It looks like we've got something in the Q&A too. Okay. Um, I think from, from an instructional perspective, when you're running really short on instructors and or if you have instructors and you have problems with um, innovator reliability and that kind of thing, um, this is a very attractive option to be able mm -hmm. to integrate some degree of and, and then also the ability to be creative and add different elements Um that you can't do if you have static, you know, volunteers. Your volunteers are going to be young, healthy people, right? Yeah. yeah. So the sounds will always be clear. The law, yeah. So exactly. Can I put this now? I can create, you know, a diverse patient or an elderly patient, or you know, uh, all, all of these different things with with a you know stroke, a keystroke, right? So rather than having to have you know Joe put on a wig and yep. <laughs> that kind but of thing and be an OB Joe. patient, yeah. yeah, yeah. But everyone still knows Joe. I think um, great question by Evan in the Q and A, uh, looking at longitudinal studies, and I think this is goes back to to Megan's point that we're probably not there yet. I, I certainly don't know any off the top of my head in, in EMS training. There's probably some in the healthcare field. Um, well, this is actually a, a, a great, great one for, for Aaron yeah. because um, one of the questions I asked Aaron about uh, her study on VR was, could you, it, did the students eventually get used to the platform and the environment and then it became less, the technology fades away and it's more about the clinical decision-making. And I don't know if you want to speak to that, Aaron. There is always going to be a learning curve with new technology, right? Change mm -hmm. is hard. Mm -hmm. but it's also necessary. It, there is a curve to it, but because they have authored cases that show you where the buttons are and show you how to do these things, I find that it takes one or two steps before they figure out, I have to put gloves on or they'll fail me. I have to ask all the assessment questions or it's going to fail me. They start to put together the fact that there's a specific way to do assessment. There's a specific order to ask questions, a specific question to ask for specific patients very quickly. And I think that that pulls them out of the fact that they have goggles on their face very quickly. It's a very cognitive process. They have to think about what they're doing and putting put it in a good order. And that process pulls them out of the fact that they're playing a video game. If it's complex enough, they stop worrying about clickers and they start thinking, how do I pass this? Mm -hmm. I think they made this Actually, comment here. Yeah, so it has to do with um, being... <laughs> 
forcing you to slow down and think. It's almost like forcing deliberate practice, Mm -hmm. you know, effortful practice to have to go back and say, oh, if I'm, you know, I haven't put my uh, gloves on. Oh, I need to ask all of the questions in in the assessment. And uh, that that was some of the comments that were made in here about, um, you know, this is actually, and they said, you know, the next generation is going to be light years ahead of us, uh, which, which I loved. But they were talking about how it forced, actually, what they commented most on was the interpersonal and scene management skills, task prioritization, delegation, and closed loop communication. And that I, I think they didn't really expect that to come out of this. And that's what came out of um, one of the themes. I think it's interesting. That's probably not what they expected going into it, right? They were expecting yeah. to monitor these people on whether or not they like this technology and probably a little bit, can they manage this patient, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we're like, well, the scene management didn't really matter. It was the fact that you worked well with your colleagues. Um, and all of a sudden we're like, gosh, we're teaching something that we didn't know we were. Yeah. Um, and there's student knowledge acquisition here for something we didn't even plan for, which I think is great. So now we figure out, okay, how can I test for scene management and delegation skills and also monitor their ability to treat a hypoglycemic pediatric patient. Um, Some of that happened during COVID um, when we all were forced to be remote. And uh, I remember, you know, Katie presenting that um, case that she did with Bill Toon being the patient on Zoom, having patients, Hillary Gates being a patient on Zoom. Um, And suddenly we found the value of being able to, you know, communicate with patients. Role play could be done virtually and recorded. So, um, yeah, things that surprised us that we didn't think we were going to be able to pull out, um, which is great. It's great when learning emerges like that. Especially when (laughs) we don't expect it. Yeah, right. We do have five minutes left, so I wonder if maybe we should do final takeaways from the paper before sure. we wrap up and let everyone go to their next session. Yeah, if anybody from the audience has questions, we'll try to repeat them if you guys can't hear it online. Thoughts. Thoughts. Anybody here use augmented reality or or tried virtual? Been down in the exhibit hall with all the different VR people? I yeah. virtual. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, and I thought it was pretty well done. I think it could be used in a lot of different contexts, and you have to evaluate the efficacy first. Yes, evaluating the efficacy of yeah. So the comment about um uh and this from Delaney, right? Yeah, um, is that uh, this virtual reality has potential for um you know uh changing things when it comes to um diversity in, in EMS and also just testing the efficacy of it is important. So I think that's going to be, that'll be always what we're doing. Thanks to people like Aaron and Rob Terrio and other people that are doing all kinds of amazing work uh, in this setting. And, you know, it's not just kind of the coolness factor or the expense factor um, that, that we want to always be kind of coming back to, but the, you know, again, back to that translational science, so I think uh, it, they positively evaluated all the u- usabilities um, and addressed some areas for improvement. And they're heading to the next step, which is, you know, seeing if it can scale up and, and be usable and change clinical behaviors. Be interesting to inter- interview these same people later. Have you run a pediatric, you know, uh, seizure and did this, you know. I was wondering that it. too. Could we do a three-month follow-up now? You know, a pediatric seizure call doesn't happen every day, but it would be interesting to 
survey them again or do a adult cardiac arrest, which we know in the next 90 days, most providers in a service of this size will likely run into. Did it help you at all? And again, I think running this simulation would make you better at doing chest compressions and giving epi and, and your algorithm. But the study demonstrates that it actually made you better at being a team player and delegating. So um, again, I'd be interested to know if that actually bears out in the real world as well. So yeah. um, I just appreciate the authors providing us everything so that this yes. study is recreatable it's usable everything is in here if you wanted to do this in your continuing education um setting you could I mean, repeat this in initial education as well so i always appreciate when the authors share as much as they can so that we can recreate it um, and this gets the ball rolling i always like it when something new and shiny actually proves something and improves our outcomes for our patients so yeah i appreciate um, the emt level and i yep. think that would be great to integrate to emt you have a large number with emt um, students as well so you could get really um, some powerful analysis going. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming uh, to us live from EMS World Expo in New Orleans and at the International Scientific Symposium, which has been a phenomenal event. We're all getting ready to go home. <laughs> and a huge shout out to all the people that brought research, contributed to research, yes. came and listened to research, listened to the poster walk. We had, a, we had to split the groups up. In fact, we had so many posters. So um, if you're interested in research, we want to know about it. Yeah. Congratulations to all the researchers and to these researchers uh, who did the study that we looked at today. So our next pre-hospital pre care research forum, Education Research Journal Club will be on Friday, October 27th, 10 a.m., Pacific, noon central. So thanks for joining us. Our next clinical journal club with Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez will be Monday, October 9th. So to join us live each month, you can go to prehospitalcare.org and you can also find our archives on YouTube. So if you missed any of these, you can go back and watch them, youtube.com slash at PCR at UCLA. And we will see you next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.